Good morning, everybody. I'm Mary. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, God, I can't even talk. Good morning. I'm very tired, so excuse me if I start stumbling over words already. Um, boy, it's good to look out and see so many faces. It's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, and we're sober having breakfast together. Is that cool? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's get the basics out of the way. Um, as I said, my name is Mary. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 26, 2008. For those of you that are mathematically challenged, I have five years, so this is the year I got my marbles back. Um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with them, but thankfully they're back. Um, I am going to be 60 this year, so again, if you're mathematically challenged, I got sober pretty late in life. Um, I was born in a small town in upstate New York, gorgeous, gorgeous area. Um, I, I have to remind people in Georgia that New York is a state because if I say I'm from New York they're like what part of the city it's like it's a state people um, and it's country and it's near the Finger Lakes and Watkins Glen and you know so we grew up with that beautiful bucolic setting of the rolling hills that are the foothills to the Catskills and um, you know, they're not a thousand feet, so as my father says, I cannot call them mountains, but they are gorgeous and covered with deciduous trees and evergreens that look like Christmas trees and lakes that are glacier-made and crystal clear and cold all year long. Um, farmland, just a really nice area. And um, a typical northern town, you know, we were sectioned off into uh, nationality. Um, it wasn't about black and white, it was about whether you were Italian, Irish, German, Polish, whatever. And, uh, you know, we were equal opportunity haters, we didn't care, you know. Um, it was a cool time to grow up because in the 50s, everybody was enjoying that post-World War II economic boom and life was good and life was pretty safe. I mean, you know, it was not atypical on summer break for my mom to have sack lunches packed at seven in the morning and as soon as breakfast was over kick all five of us kids out of the house and tell us unless we had the bathroom or we were bleeding we weren't to come home till dinner so and and she knew that she could do that with some safety because no matter where we went to play on the block you know if we misbehaved one of the other moms would swat us just as quickly as my mom so it was a really cool time to grow up and we had a lot of freedom and um it, it, life was just good, and I was the fourth of the five siblings, so I had two older brothers and an older sister, and, you know, like any kid, I just wanted to tag along with them, follow them, annoy the hell out of them, and imitate them. And um, my dad had, my dad and my mom both grew up during the Depression, and, you know, as soon as Pearl Harbor happened, they both, like almost all Americans at that time, they both enlisted in the service, so they were World War II veterans, both of them. So, I mean, we really were raised on patriotism and church and family, and these were the things that were supposed to be important. There was just this little catch, because my dad drank a whole bunch, and um, my mom, whose father, had committed suicide on a drunk in jail when she was six, wasn't handling that real well. She was pretty angry about that. Um, so on the outside, you know, we had the little house in the neighborhood and we were our church custodians and dad worked at the post office overnight and he cleaned <laughs> beauty salons during, you know, some point in the day. I don't ever know how he kept up with all the jobs. He, drove a bread delivery truck, but you know, he was, he was a high school dropout. He dropped out during the depression to help support his family like millions of Americans at that time. And he was watching his siblings marry well and have these really nice financially secure lives. And he was not financially secure. Um, not sure if many of the kids that survived the depression ever felt like they would be. And he was drinking, I think primarily to deal with what he saw during the war. Um, he, he would load the transport ships to bring the wounded home um, from the Normandy invasion and other battles in Europe. And he's told me now that he's 94 that, you know, he used to look at those guys and think of saying that we say all the time there, but for the grace of God go I. Um, 
so anyway, you know, we're we're rocking and rolling along, and I loved my dad. I was a daddy's girl from the get-go. I wanted to go everywhere with him, do everything with him. I mean, we had a station wagon. I'd stand on the front seat at three years old and put my arm around his shoulder, and we'd go to garage sales or we'd go to thrift stores or sometimes when we were really going to have fun we went to the dump and saw what we could salvage there and I loved it it was I was with my dad and that's all I cared about and um, we'd watch football together in the fall and winter and we'd watch baseball together in the summer and he liked beer and when I was four I remember finding out so did I because he would let me have sips but I really liked the taste of it. And so like when he'd go to the bathroom and there was beer left in either his mug that had a whistle on it, that was really cool, or a can, I'd finish it. And I loved it. I loved it because I can remember that I was shy and introverted. <laughs> I was. And, um, you know, literally I, when I would, would I, I mean, I didn't know this at four and five, but you know, I can look back now and see that there was that immediate personality change because I felt comfortable and I felt pretty and I felt accepted and like I could sing and dance. I could be Shirley Temple. Um, and that's another lifelong fascination. My mom loved the celebrity life and so I grew up living with photo play and modern screen and you know was Liz gonna divorce Eddie and marry Richard Burton and oh my god I mean you know I loved that stuff even as a kid and so I'm a celebrity junkie that's my guilty pleasure um, but anyway so the beer thing you know and we'd go to bars we every <laughs> northern towns every corner there's a bar and grill everybody has their local tavern they knew me so well that they had the big mug for my dad, the frosted mug. They had a little bitty one for me. And I'd sit in the bar and drink with my dad and watch him play poker with his friends and think that it was just really cool. Um, and there was a lot of stuff going on at the house. I mean, the fighting was getting worse. And I'm sure trying to work a full-time job and four part-time jobs that, you know, my dad's nerves were frayed constantly. and. God knows keeping up with five unruly children, my mother's were, and things started happening that were real out of the ordinary, and I was real confused by all of it. Um, I remember thinking that I'd go to friend's house and their moms and dads would be hugging or like kiss affectionately, not, you know, PDAs, but, you know, just the normal, hi, I love you, I'm home from work kiss, and I never saw my parents do that, never. Um, so it was just a real kind of tense situation and then in 1961 when I was seven I was playing with my older sister at the park my brothers were up in Cooperstown at my great-aunt and uncle's farm helping with the harvest and um, my older sister and I went home and as we were getting close to our home there were all these police cars and an ambulance and a big crowd and my dad was on the front porch with a gun and my mom was holding my baby sister and he had the gun pointed at my mom and one of the police officers played softball with my dad and we knew Mr. Ritter real well and he said Mary can you try to talk to your dad and I was seven and I remember saying daddy and we all I mean they knew I didn't they knew he was having a breakdown of some sort, but I didn't. And I said, Daddy, Daddy, and of course I was crying because that's all I did then and it's pretty much all I do now. Um, but I was crying and I said, Daddy, and when he turned to look at me, so did the gun. And Mr. Ritter shot him in the leg. And um, they took him away in an ambulance and he went to a mental hospital. And for five months we had no income and um, my dad, before this incident, before the police came and all, had, I mean, literally destroyed the entire contents of our home um, in his rage. And none of this made any sense to me. I mean, and, and, and there were people that came by to express sorrow or offer food, but I can still remember me clinging to one side of my mom's dress and my older sister the other side and she'd be holding the baby and she'd only open the door like this much 
And then she'd say, thank you, but we're fine, and close the door. But we didn't have anything to eat. And I remember thinking, let them give us the food. Um, so I tell you this, not to say that there's any blame associated with what happened, but as a child, I didn't understand any of this. And as an adult, I look at it now and think, how hard my parents must have tried to normalize things for us, and it was just impossible. Um, and of course, upon return from the hospital, Dad's drinking escalated even further. And so by the time I was 14, I, I had discovered something. Another, um, the day that my soul ruptured, I was 10, and I was walking home from school with a friend, and we passed a newsstand in, in New York. The daily papers are just scandal mags. And there was like a post and a mirror and a whatever, and they, the cover was like girl raped in Central Park. And I, I looked at my friend and I said, John, his name was Johnny Whitson, and I said, Johnny, isn't that so sad that girl got stabbed? And he said, stabbed? And I said, yeah, that's what raped means. And he said, who told you that? My daddy. And he says, that's not what it means. And he told me what it meant. And when he told me what it meant in about 10 seconds, my, I felt like the world had shifted and my universe was going around because that's what my brother and my father were doing with me almost on a daily basis. And had been since I was four and six with my brother. And I didn't, I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. I didn't know that that was not normal behavior. And it explained a lot of things, like why I had asked my girlfriends, do you like it when your daddy does this? And then nobody came to my birthday party. <laughs> um, but my soul ruptured that day because it was like what I had thought was a, a, a part of loving had turned out to be something very ugly. And the only possible choice I had at 10 years old was to say, it must be me. It must be something I've done. It must be something horrible, horrible that I've done. And you know, like I said, we were the custodians of the church and regular churchgoers. And it, the family was ecumenical. Um, grandpa was Lutheran, grandma was Jewish, dad was Catholic, mom was Methodist. And in those days, interfaith marriages were as shocking as interracial marriages were in the 60s. Um, you know, marrying out of Catholicism was a big deal, and we'd been promised to be raised Catholic, and she reneged on that. More anger, more resentments, more divide and chasm, and so there was all this stuff going on, but as a child, I was just like, okay, I'm doing something evil. I'm going to burn in hell for the rest of my life, and nightmares started, and lots of other behaviors, and I carried that secret around until I was 14, and I finally went to my mom and said, I'm really scared that um, I'm going to get pregnant. And when I told her why, um, you know, I got the typical reaction, the slap in the face and you lying, you know, sack of shit. And, and bottom line, by 14, my garbage bags were packed and I was on the curb and I was out of there. Um, and I went, to, I went to work as a domestic. Um, I mean, I love Downton Abbey and upstairs, downstairs, and stuff like that because I went to work for this family that were real socially acceptable and all that on the outside. And, um, you know, well-to-do, and I got, you know, when I went to school, I was fine. I got to wear my clothes, but as soon as I came home, I got to change into the uniform, and I was the nanny for their two boys and the housekeeper. And as soon as I moved into their house, the dad was a, a psychologist and the, the mom was a booking agent for music industry. Um, they were like, there's the bar. This is where we keep the cartons of cigarettes. Help yourself. <laughs> well, all righty then. I really like it here. And, um, <laughs> you know, when you're living in a home where there's a booking agent for musicians and you're 16, and, and that I had graduated from uh, high school by that. I was really smart in school. Um, 
And I am here to prove to you, as I tell this story, that being smart is not an asset in this program. Um, really and truly. I mean, academically, you know, I graduated two years ahead of time, top of my class, five scholarships, full rides, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, hey, look where I am. Um, you know, and I. I, I was still in school at 16. I was finishing high school and starting college and all that. And, you know, she's a booking agent for a talent agency that does musicians. And so there's these guys in and out of the house all the time. And I've got full access to the bar and the cigarettes. And at 16, it's hard to believe, but I was cute. And I mean, really thin and long hair. And I mean, just, you know, wanted to know what love was like the German or foreigner song says I mean want to know what love is I want you to show me um, <laughs> and so you know I was real popular with the musicians and lots of the guys at school that weren't so savory and you know I also found out then that you know if you did certain things guys would share their stuff with you whether it was my story includes drugs okay let's just get that out of the way um, whether it was the alcohol or the drug I mean they were real willing to share and it was like I thought wow they're so generous but then I'd wake up and not know where I was and think was that were they doing that because they were being nice or were they trying to manipulate me I mean stupid stuff so by by 16, I'm pregnant. And that really nice, socially acceptable, upper-level family were really pissed off because they'd been telling everybody for over a year at this point, you know, that I was their adopted daughter and that they were grooming me and they had helped me get into college and blah, blah, blah. And, I, and all that was actually true. But, you know, at 16, when you're pregnant and you're not married and you're scared, what do you do? So of course I sneak downstairs and I pick up the phone to call the guy that I'm pregnant with and let him know that the people in my house are getting ready to call his parents and you know anyway the mom came down in the middle of the phone call and uh, she wasn't real pleased with the fact that I was using the phone and I got beaten pretty well and I left the house this was November and um, it was snowing and I had on a cotton house coat. I'd just gotten out of the shower. I had on a cotton house coat, no shoes, and I walked the two blocks, a small town, like I said, to the bakery where my mom worked. And um, I walked in the door, and I hadn't been home in two years. I hadn't seen my family in two years. And I walked in the door, and my mom runs out from behind the bakery counter and looks at her boss and says, oh my God, Connie, call the police. Look what someone's done to this child. It took her five minutes to figure out it was her daughter. And um, the injuries were significant enough that there was no baby to worry about. And so what would I do? I married him. I thought, well, you know, we lost the baby, but I'll get married. That will fix it. So I got married four days after I turned 18. And he was a band guy, and so I sang in a band for my first real job. Um, and we traveled around and did, you know, the hotel stuff and nightclubs and summer clubs and opened for people and stuff. And it was a lot of fun and very heady. And me with five guys on the road, no female contact at all. And it wasn't a good marriage because it wasn't based on love. It was based on lust and identification. And so it ended pretty quickly. And. I think the first inkling that I had that I was an alcoholic came at 18, shortly after we were married, because we had a gig in Fall River, Massachusetts. And at that time in New York, the drinking age was 18. So I'd been drinking with impunity since I'd had my fake ID early on, and also in homes and with permission. And I mean, hell, my eighth grade teacher was the one that first got me stoned. Um, it, she was like, you're nervous and upset. Let me have you have this. Here, smoke this pipe. And I was like, wow, okay. Um, I mean, I loved it all. I can only tell you I loved the feeling I had when I wasn't in reality. So anyway, I go into this bar in Fall River, Massachusetts, and I'll look at the bartender. And I'm like, hi, I'm Mary. I'm with the band, and I'll have a Tom Collins. And he looks at me, and he says, I'll see your ID. And I said, I'm, excuse me, I'm 18. And he says, drinking age in Massachusetts is 21. <gasps> 
what? <laughs> and that was probably the first inkling I had because I remember panicked, like, what will I do? How will I go on stage if I'm not drunk? I mean, I could only sing and get on stage when I was drunk. I was an introvert. I was born an introvert. What you see before you is the miracle of transformation of this program. Um, anyway, life goes on and I got divorced out of that marriage and, you know, got right into another relationship. I mean, and that's going to, that's, we're, we won't bore you with details. And I moved to Georgia with this guy that I got involved with when I was 21 and um, just moved down here. And I mean, I remember leaving New York and it's March and the snow is two and a half feet high and it's gray and it's dirty and all the trees are bare and everything looks gray and dirty. And we pull into Atlanta and it's like going from Kansas to Oz. Everything's technicolor, the sun's shining, things are blooming, it's gorgeous, azure blue sky. And I'm like, oh, this is it, this is gonna fix me. Plus I have this guy that's left his wife and two kids and we're down here together now, so that's all gonna be good. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, in alcohol, in alcohol, it, it was amazing the progression of how every sound spiritual principle that I had ever been taught as a child, and I actually did get that benefit, just fell away. It was like, I can justify this, I can justify that. I can do it all with impunity. And stayed in Georgia, married again. The second marriage, that was hilarious because he was my, he was my drug dealer. And, um, you know, it was a nice life. We had a beautiful home on Lenox Road in Buckhead. And, and he was, he, his, his front was an antique store on Peachtree Street. And we'd go down to Miami with the three box trucks and we'd go to the Sotheby's auction and we'd load up the antiques with kilos and bring them back in the trucks and who knew, you know? So anyway, that was a lot of fun because, you know, he had six brothers and they all had their own individual niche of what they sold. So I was covered and um, I just had the best time until a very abrupt and sudden end of the marriage. And, um, you know, I mean, I was on a, I, I was drinking like an, I, I was drinking like a fish and I was using just the same way. And, you know, to go from that to, I have no supply and I have no contacts and thinking I was going to die and, but did, quit? No, mm -mm, no, no. And then about six months after we divorced, he called me because his mother was an alcoholic and she had burned the house down smoking in bed. And he said, will you take her to an AA meeting? And I remember thinking, I've heard of this organization, but it was never something I was really aware of. And I was like, yeah, I'll take her. I mean, why me? And he said, well, she'll listen to you. She won't listen to me. And I thought, okay. So I took her to this AA meeting and I remember it was a speaker meeting. And I remember sitting and listening to the guy tell his story. And it was a pretty intense story and being just completely overwhelmed and thinking to myself, you know, I don't drink like that. <laughs> That's not happened to me. So, you know, rock and roll right along. I was hoping that my mother-in-law got what she needed, but you know, it was now time for me to go on. And um, I went to photography school, and I'd been working all this time, by the way. I mean, I worked for two of the largest executive search firms in the United States as their research director. It, professionally, I was good, you know? I mean, it might have been thanks to, you know, a bump here and there, but I was good professionally. I always was moved up, promoted, showed up, suited, you know, it, I was good. Functional, functional alcoholic, drug-addicted employee, but I was good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, uh, after uh, photography school is almost over, I'm working on my final project. I've had a photo that I've submitted and it's been juried into Callenwold and I'm all full of ego and excitement and I'm going to get the prints made because we get to sell prints at the show and I walk into Wolf Camera and there's this really cute dude behind the counter and he's looking at the thing that they're going to print for me and you know, going, wow, that's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And of course, you know, it's like, Hi, I'm Mary. <laughs> so I took yet another hostage and um, married him and thought, you know, okay, we won't, 
you know, we we'll do this the right way. And so we went ahead and, you know, we did the church, the premarital counseling. My dad, for the first time out of the three marriages, showed up, put on a tux, gave me away, wasn't wasn't drunk at the wedding, you know, did wait until fifteen minutes after it was over. And it was like, okay, and I'm sorry, I missed something that was pretty significant. When I was 23, my mother died of ovarian cancer. I, I, I am not trying to leave her out of this story, but I had a much closer relationship with my dad, as sick as that may sound to some of you who don't understand, um, much closer relationship, because my mother, knowing that I was the surrogate, my mother had an intense hatred of me, and it wasn't about me. It was about her feelings of inadequacy and not being able to be a good wife and it was jealousy and rage and and indignation and it just was the most horrific thing and it wasn't until she was on her deathbed that she didn't say anything to me but she turned to my two sisters and she said be kinder to your sister Mary because she was telling the truth and um, you know I carried <laughs> I carried that resentment until what when did I last go see Dad? Um, <laughs> September of last year. September of last year is when I left the letter at a gravesite saying, I think I can finally tell you that with God's help, I release all anger and resentment towards the way you treated me, and I want you to know that I so appreciate the gifts you gave me because it's my mother that makes me love Christmas and decorating and making sure that people that might not have family or are hungry would come for Thanksgiving. I mean, my mother didn't like me, but my mother was a good, good woman who tried very hard to be kind to others. Um, so anyway, um, got married the third time and uh, still drinking, still using, and of course that's the center of our relationship too. So despite the premarital counseling and all that, you know, when the center of your relationship is, wow, you use like I do, yay, um, doesn't usually work out real well for most of us. And so we go to a surprise honeymoon for me in Jamaica, and it's at a resort, hedonism too. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, Oh my God, because I do have this thing when I drink, a couple of things happen. First of all, my clothes fall off. <laughs> and um, it doesn't have to be tequila either, boys. It can be pretty much anything. My clothes fall off. And um, the other thing that happens when I drink is that I get, I get real uninhibited, whereas normally I'm inhibited. And... Um, so we're at this hedonism, too. I mean, like you're sitting in the pool on a stool in the middle of the pool and they're just like handing me strawberry daiquiri after strawberry daiquiri. My tongue was pink. Um, <laughs> and I have this conversation with him about, you know, it's that time and, you know, if we're not careful that we could very easily wind up with a child. And so we have our first marital experience and he jumps up off the bed and says, I just gave you a baby as a wedding gift. really and son of a bitch yes he did and that was the beginning of truly understanding some things that I had not wanted to look at when I meet women in this program and they look at me and they're like well you know I've drunk for 30 years but except for you know when I had my kids and I'm like really because I couldn't stop and I had lost seven children before this. And that was all I ever wanted to be was a mom. And I'm pregnant and, you know, I'm doing the same number I always do and the doctor puts me on bed rest and we get past it and I'm four months pregnant and I'm feeling the butterfly kisses from the inside when the first sign the baby's moving. And I can't stop. And then I start feeling somersaults. I can't stop. And a week before he's ready to come into the world, my loving husband drives me to a parking lot and says, if there's anything wrong with this child because of your using, 
when he's born, we are telling everyone he's still born and giving him up for adoption. I will not have a less than perfect child. Yeah, I love you too. <laughs> I love you too. And um, we get into the delivery room and <laughs> this beautiful, I, I didn't ever want to know what sex my babies were. I felt like that was God's ultimate gift to a woman was surprise you have a son surprise you have a daughter whatever it worked for me and I have this beautiful little adorable baby boy who is just I mean he scored 10 10 on his Apgar and I'm remembering going thank you thank you and he's gorgeous and they want to use him for the demo baby at the bathing demonstration I'm thinking look what I did I got the perfect baby and I still couldn't stop and I'm breastfeeding and he's three months old, and I'd worked for months making this beautiful baby blanket for him, and I'm smoking a joint after being through a bottle of red wine, and I'm in the rocking chair, and I'm rocking him, and I'm smoking the joint, and the cherry falls on the baby blanket and sets it on fire. And the baby was not hurt, um, but my soul split in two again. And... The next day I went to work, I was at Spencer Stewart and Associates, the executive search firm, and I walked into my boss's office and I said, I'm an alcoholic and I'm a drug addict and I've got to go get help. And that was 1985. And that was the year Time Magazine ran a cover story that cocaine was not addictive. Um, <laughs> so my boss, who was very well connected in the Atlanta community, immediately called a doctor friend of his at Emory and then called me at my treatment center to let me know that cocaine was not addictive <laughs> and I did not need to be in treatment. And I, anyway, I tried to get sober and I actually did. I got sober with the help of, of like we always do, I got sober with the help of God, the fellowship of AA and a sponsor and the steps and I had a beautiful life from late 1985 until um, about 1993 and in the midst of that I had a daughter and I had her completely so including I did not smoke cigarettes um, during the time I was pregnant with my daughter and so I had this beautiful little family, boy, girl, both perfect, husband, he was going to school, getting a degree, and I was working at Bell South, and I was doing public speaking and public relations and speech writing, and everything was good, and then we took my four-year-old son to the dentist, and my, my husband fell in love with the dental hygienist and left me and the two babies, and um, I figured that was karma for having brought that guy to Georgia from his wife and two kids. Um, and I was still doing it. I was single. I, w I was going to meetings. My son was the mascot for one of the softball teams. My kids were raised in these rooms. This is, I mean, I, I, we used to go to Bug Busters when Travis was still a baby, and this was above Bug Bu Travis was still a baby, and, you know, I'd walk into that smoke-filled room, and the baby would start fussing, and Mike Cook or somebody like that would get up and grab my baby, and I'd be like... And I would be scared because these guys all looked so scary to me. You know, they had tattoos and they rode motorcycles and, you know, my God, I mean, they'd been in jail. And I'm thinking, like, I'm looking down on them. Really? Look who I am? But they'd hold my baby. They'd go outside. They'd make him laugh. And they'd let me get sober. Um, and it was a beautiful life. And in 1993, when I was at Bell South, and I, you know, it, there, there's, a, there's a familiar thread, and I'm sorry that you guys have to hear this, but there are things that you need to hear that we don't talk about because it may change the way that you decide to treat a woman in this program. Um, you know, I went to work, and I'm in this big company, and there's this well-known sexual predator in the company, and I, I mean, it's like we have targets on our foreheads. You know, it's like, I'm a victim. Hurt me. And I'm, ha I'm in the job of my dreams, and I'm loving life, and I can take my kids to Disney World, and I'm making good money even though I'm a drunk, and I'm working late one night, and this well-known sexual predator for, I mean, I had told my supervisor, I told human resources, I'd gone to the EAP program, and I'd said, God, it's triggering all the issues from my childhood, and, 
you know, I'm not sure I can still be functional and blah, blah, blah. And I'd been having some psychiatric experiences and being diagnosed. And anyway, I was working late one night and so was he and I got raped. And um, after that, after that, it was like everything changed again. And it was 94, so I think I was in year eight to nine where, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't working by then. I'd started with the merry-go-round of the mental institutions and I, I just couldn't pull it together. I, I, I was agoraphobic, I was catatonic. I mean, my six-year-old was taking care of my two-year-old. And I went out to dinner with a friend, a male friend, who was interested in me. And I remember sitting at that restaurant. It was Avanti down on West Paces Ferry. And he was like, do you like wine with dinner? And I said, yeah, I do. And it never, I mean, I, sobriety had completely lost its priority because I was completely in victimhood. I didn't drink because of what happened to me. I drank again because I wasn't working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I chose to anesthetize myself rather than live with the feelings that I was experiencing. And it was a very short time after that that the alcoholism got so bad that, you know, I became that mother that signed the legal document that said I give you custody of the children rather than having them forcibly taken from me. And that started a series of suicide attempts. That was another love affair. I started trying to commit suicide in my natal home when I was 13. 42 attempts in 59 years, and I'm still here, so God must have a purpose for me. Um, and that's what happens. When my soul was ruptured, it was like the message I got is, you're not worth loving. You're not worth being nice to. You are here for my pleasure, my purpose. And so that was what I internalized. And from that point on, if you weren't happy with what I did, whether you were male, female, friend, foe, it was always my fault. I'm sorry is my middle name. It's the one I've almost had to legally adopt because I forget that it's Jean. I begin sentences with, I'm sorry. I mean, I've had sponsors look at me and go, you're sorry for living, Mary. I know, I, I know, I'm really sorry I'm still here. Mental institutions, mental institutions, mental institutions, no children, more dysfunctional relationships, because obviously if there's anything that's gonna fix me, it's gonna be a man. No, I don't think so. And um, that was all about thinking too that you know I may not be worthy of love, but I can at least recreate that which I'm familiar with. I will hurt me because that's what I'm familiar with. That's what feels comfortable. Not respecting myself, not liking myself, not thinking that I have gifts that have been given to me by my higher power that I can help grow into by doing what we do here. I just wanted to obliterate me. And if that meant oblivion, death, I didn't care. The only thing that I was afraid of by the time I got here in 2008, and by that time I was a bag lady on the streets, the only thing I was afraid of was living. Living and drinking was a much scarier alternative than dying. And I go to my, I'm in a mental hospital in Tennessee where I'm homeless, and they call me in and say, if we buy you a bus ticket back to Georgia, would you be willing to go back to Georgia? I'm like, the mental institution doesn't want me. <laughs> Do you sink lower than that? Um, so my son picked me up at the bus station in Marietta, gave me 20, he had had me forcibly removed from his home that same son that I abused in utero. And he had had the police remove me from his home and that was what started my homelessness. And he allowed me one night to stay in his home when I got back. And uh, that morning he went off to work and his fully stocked bar was there and the hospital had been kind enough to give me a really big bottle of clonopin. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm taking the top off the bottle and I'm taking a handful and I'm 
washing it down with tequila and it's another and I'm sitting there in his room and I'm crying I'm like oh, and doesn't anybody love me why won't anybody do an intervention why doesn't anybody love me and I hear this voice clear as day and I'm not medicated for the bipolar either I hear this voice <laughs> clear as day firm but gentle loud but soft I don't know how to describe it but I hear this voice clear as day go I love you now, I don't care if every one of you walks out of here and tells that you heard a psychotic delusional woman say that God talked to her on the last day she drank. I don't care. Because I know that that was the moment where my willingness to accept that I had to ask for help again, that, that was it. It was like that was the moment because it, it had to be because in the very next second, the number of Ridgeview, where it, I'd already been 12 times, went through my head by memory okay we're in cell phone land now we don't remember phone numbers and I picked up the phone and dialed and of course they do know who I am and I'm talking to the intake counselor telling her what I'm doing she's like you know we're gonna send the ambulance on yeah I know and we're gonna call your son yeah I know and my son comes running home and that same little boy that was the mascot for the softball team and all is standing at the edge of the ambulance and he says mom no matter what else make sure you ask the doctor if you can go to AA meetings because you have to ask permission to do it. It's off the unit. So I did, and I told the doctor I'd do whatever he asked me to do if he'd just let me go to meetings. And we go to the meeting that night, and they're reading how it works. And I don't know if this ever happened to any of you, but they put this new sentence in that they had not had there in 85. <laughs> and it says... Um, it's on page 59. We asked his, as in God's, protection and care with complete abandon. Okay, there's only two things in my life that I've ever wanted for myself. One is to feel safe, which to me is protected, and the other is cared for. And so I went back to my room after I got my white chip and I got on my knees and I asked, that, that was my first step prayer will you protect and care for me, please? Of course, it took months of sobriety, years maybe before I realized he always did. And I've had sponsors and I've had people and women and I'm sorry in a way, I know I've taken a lot of the time with what happened, but what, it, what it's like now is I've gone through the steps over and over and over again. I, see, mistakenly, too, I thought you went through the steps. Oh, you graduate. Now you just live. No, 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 no. For me, the way it works is every time I work with someone, I go through the steps again. I go through the steps all the time as I go through my day. It's a part of my life now. Um, the principles, those basic spiritual principles that I learned as a kid are as true today as they were then. The only problem, the only thing that stood between me and recovery was my old belief system, which was childish because it was formed when I was a child. And then I drank and I stopped growing. So when I think about a higher power and I'm brand new and I'm coming off the streets and 40 years mostly of active alcoholism, I'm thinking about God like that little girl that was afraid in Sunday school and didn't know. I mean, why would I ever give any credence to the idea that maybe I was the problem, not the, the faith? And then I had sponsors and friends that said, you need to read We Agnostics. And I get into We, we Agnostics, and I'm very insulted, by the way, because I've worked in a church, and I've... I've spoken at churches and I've taught Sunday school and by God I'm a confirmation mentor um, so who are you to tell me about God and I get to page 53 when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing God either is or he isn't what was our choice to be? So, I wanted the miracle, and I said, let's try something different. Let's try approaching this differently. And for me, that meant that it, since I knew nothing about love, 
and I knew nothing about life, and I knew nothing about me that was real. I couldn't reach any of that authentic stuff from before I got drinking. My commitment for my first year was the first relationship I want to develop is with my higher power. Everything else will come after that. And people thought I was nuts because most of us come in here and it's like, oh, he's cute. Oh, hey, gee. Now, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, when Charlie Sheen is talking about drinking tiger blood and winning, I'm sitting in front of the TV going, yeah, I understand. I don't want that anymore. I don't. And I don't want to be a whore. I don't want to be a whore out of some simple misunderstanding that I'm not worth loving and treating well. And the only person I could think of, the only entity that I could think of was my friend, my higher power, to help mold me back into the person that he always intended for me to be. And forgive me, I was raised in a time when we used male pronouns for third person. I'm, I don't care what you think of God, I don't, it's a word. But I wanted to be what he wanted to be. And I remember I came on this quote from um, George MacDonald, who if you don't know him, he, he taught C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis is one of the great uh, writers, spiritual writers. But I came upon this and I remember thinking, this is my mantra, I would rather be what God chose me to be than the most glorious creature that I could think of, for to have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God, is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all thinking. So, you know, I started looking up definitions. What does surrender mean? Because that were, I mean, military family? I mean, pull yourself up by your boot? Okay, no. Stop fighting. That's all it means. What happens when somebody surrenders? The fighting stops. Okay, powerless. Unable to produce an effect. Lacking power to act. Helpless. When it came to drinking, absolutely convicted of that one. What is sanity? You know, like I said, I've got a grave emotional and mental disorder too, so that one was really scary. I ride horses naked in subdivisions when I'm drunk. <laughs> I don't get DUIs. I call the police and I say, I've had, I call 911, and I say, I've had too much to drink and I know I can't drive to the liquor store, but I'm low on potassium and I'm having leg cramps. Could you have an officer drop off a bunch of bananas? <laughs> and I get arrested for harassing 911. I mean, seriously, folks, we're talking crazy. So, sanity, what is that? Sound, healthy judgment, and mind. And then, the, this one totally escaped me integrity, adherence to moral principles, soundness of moral character, honesty. The state of being whole or undiminished, unimpaired, in perfect condition. And what this program has given me through the steps is the ability to depend on a higher power to solve all my problems, to allow my higher power to communicate with me through you. I don't care if you've got an hour without drinking because we've been here that long or whether you've got 35, 45 years, you can gift me if you so choose. You can smile at me, hug me, make me a cup of coffee. I'll take it. Um, sponsorship, oh my God. I mean, I never wanted to have to talk to a sponsor and be accountable or give my insanity away, but I was lucky enough to have a sponsor that would take me to the psychiatric appointment at the clinic wearing a t-shirt that said I hear voices and they don't like you <laughs> where else but in AA can you find that kind of friendship where you know Danny Danny used to always crack me up because he'd come in and he'd say you know I was always the black sheep of my family and I came in here and I found the rest of the flock <laughs> and you know for 20 some years for 20 some years I have watched I have watched people like Danny and myself and others that couldn't get it with the one white chip, you know. And I have this in an enormous compassion, but I tell you what, a couple of weeks ago I was ready to lose my mind and I was honest 
and this same man that is just as quick to you know get frustrated with me in a conversation and say I gotta go and hang up and then send me a text that says oh and don't text me and it ain't romantic this is like my little brother okay he is like my little brother he calls me up like four hours later in the evening and he's like I want you to look this up and I want you to know that this is on TV and it's a spiritual thing he's sharing with me and I'm sitting there going really because this is coming from a man and men have only hurt me most of you know I'm sorry I know I'm running a little over but I gotta get this in most of you know I lived at Sims boarding house you know the beauty of the gift that Sims gave me Sims drove me to meetings day after day after day, twice a day, Monday through Saturday, for two and a half years. And he was an older man, automatic fear. He was a married man, automatic fear. And in two and a half years, that man did nothing but treat me with dignity, integrity, and respect. Never an inappropriate comment, never an inappropriate touch, never a lustful, nasty, base, you're a piece of meat comment. He restored me to wanting to be a woman without ever having done anything but be kind and loving. He was the father I always wanted. I love my family. We're all just spiritually sick, trying to get well. And this program gives us the chance to love each other as we walk each other home. And nothing can do this. Nothing can produce somebody that's now a good mother, a good grandmother, a good friend, a good daughter. Nothing can produce that that I'm aware of for me, for this person, this alcoholic, but this fellowship and this design for living that really, really works. So I will leave you with this. The dictionary definition of a miracle. A miracle is an extraordinary or remarkable event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. And if you're not sure about manifest, it means to make clear and show plainly. Today I get the privilege of working with women who cry in my arms and say, I just can't tell you what ruptured my soul. I know before they tell me. I know. And I know with the men, too. And this program gives me a chance to see myself as a daughter of the king. I don't have to be better than you. I don't have to be less than you. And I can look in a mirror today and I can say I love you and I don't feel ashamed. That's an amazing amazing gift for somebody like me and if anything in this has touched you today then God has answered my prayers thanks for letting me share